Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits, and their names were Flopsy, Mopsy, Cottontail, and Peter. Sorry, wrong story. This story starts at the very specific upon a time, 35 years before that other story was even published, when on the 28th of July in 1866, Helen Beatrix Potter was born to Rupert and Helen Potter of Two Bolton Gardens, West Brompton. Beatrix Potter was born into a wealthy, artistic and scientifically literate family. And so this is the tale of all those things. Enough wealth to be independent, when art becomes science, who says what science is, and as a side note, if a scientific paper falls behind the bookshelf of history, does anybody really care? Aside from their long summer holidays with family, Beatrix and her younger brother Bertram were very properly in the care of a governess. And so they spent most of their time upstairs on the third floor of their fashionable southwest London home, bored out of their skulls. Their boredom seems to have been alleviated by smuggling in a vast menagerie into their nursery, one animal at a time, without their parents noticing. This impromptu zoo included a frog, newts, a ring-necked snake, minnows, a dormouse named Zarifa, house mice, birds, bats, snails, guinea pigs, a hedgehog named Mrs. Tiggywinkle, and over the years, a number of rabbits, including the perhaps familiar Benjamin and Peter. Beatrix played with these animals excessive and drew these animals obsessively. And when these darling pets died, she and her brother sometimes boiled off the skin and flesh to study their bones. <laughs> yes, when Victorian kids scienced, they scienced without mercy. <laughs> and if you remember Beatrix Potter's stories as being all cute and cuddly, you probably need to go and read them again. And especially note that despite the outfits and the upright postures, how very, very anatomically correct all the animals are. <laughs> Now, while Beatrix Potter was perhaps more keen than most, all of Victorian England was abuzz with natural history. Darwin's origins of this origin of the species was still a topic for debate. Science magazines flourished. The Potters subscribed to Hardwick's Science Gossip, a respected illustrated journal for the exchange of information for students and lovers of nature. And apparently family debates over identification and proper microscopic technique were commonplace in Victorian households. Now, I was going to take issue with just how common they were, but then I remember that I actually carry an iPhone microscope in my bag, and just the other day my daughter did suggest that my using a microscope in direct sunlight may result in a burned hole in the back of my retina. Anyway, if Victorian England had natural history fever, and its enthusiasm for watercolour painting had reached plague proportions. At the time of Beatrix's birth, just one model of watercolour kit had sold 11 million units in 13 years, and there were only 20 million people in the whole of the UK at the time. But Beatrix's devotion to art went far deeper than the fashion of the day. It's all the same, drawing, painting, modelling, the irresistible desire to copy any beautiful object which strikes the eye. Why cannot one be content to look at it? I cannot rest, I must draw, however poor the result. And draw she certainly did. 
Thousands of childhood pencil sketches, inks and delicate watercolours, capturing everything from the microscopic scales of butterfly wings to bats, birds' eggs and water lily blossoms. By her early 20s, Beatrix's years of exacting observation and obsessive art practice had become focused on fungi. She was first drawn to them as splashes of colour in the otherwise green and brown landscape, but they also afforded her the freedom to journey into the forests and fields in a pony cart with her wooden case of watercolours and without her family. And the hunt for and the finding of unexpected rare specimens brought her genuine pleasure. And in fact, it was on a break from fungus hunting <clears throat> that Beatrix sat down in the sunshine on the lawn and wrote a picture letter to the sick child of a favourite former governess about a disobedient young rabbit called Peter. Now, Victorian natural history had produced notable female amateur scientists and illustrators, and they were amateur only in the sense that most women of the age were not sent to school or university. Yet by comparison to her contemporaries, women like Margaret Gatty, the marine biologist, Marianne North, the botanist, Eleanor Omerod, an entomologist, or even her cousin Mary Hutton, soon to become a geologist, Beatrix's efforts were, yet, were not yet at the same level of commitment. Sensing the need to up her game, she sought out a credible critic, and she found him in the form of Charlie McIntosh, a postman that she'd known since childhood, who in that most Victorian way also happened to be a very well-regarded Scottish mycologist. <laughs> That's a fungus scientist. <laughs> they struck up an unconventional scientific friendship, and he became her fungal mentor. <laughs> That's a phrase I never thought I'd use. <laughs> and apologies to any Scottish people here for this coming accent. <clears throat> Since you've begun your study of the... Of the sorry. Your study... <laughs> <laughs> study of the funguses. You seem to see your drawings of them as defective with regards to the gills, but you can't make them more perfect as botanical drawings by making separate sketches of the sections, showing the attachments of the gills, the stems, if it be hollow or otherwise, or other details that would show the characteristics of the plants more distinctively. His advice would help professionalise her amateur enthusiasms across hundreds of fungal illustrations. Beatrix also became curious about spore germination. And when Macintosh couldn't help, she tried the Natural History Museum, which was just a few blocks from the family home. But their limited collection of dried and pickled fungi was so badly labelled as to be almost useless. And it's perhaps worth emphasising this is why art was so integral to natural history at the time. When you collect a specimen by killing and stuffing it, or pickling it in alcohol, or squashing it in a book you completely butter it up. <laughs> and it really helps to have some notion of what your odd, colourless, bloated animal corpse in a jar actually used to look like. <laughs> Beatrice's uncle, a distinguished chemist, a fellow of the Royal Society and a vice-chancellor of London University, sought to assist by providing an introduction to Britain's foremost botanical authorities at Kew Gardens. And on first viewing, they liked her work very much, enough to provide her with an open ticket of admission to visit the gardens whenever she chose. And to be fair to Beatrice, despite her lack of scientific training, she was undoubtedly one of very few Victorians engaged in the experimental observation of fungi. 
It was 20 years or so before professional mycologists started describing these fungi at the same level of detail that she had, and 40 years till they recognised the difference between closely related fungi that Beatrix observed. But her blunt self-confidence, which masked anxieties, immediately put a strain on the new relationship when she repeatedly argued with a head of Kew Gardens about her research. However, her tenacious spore germination work did win over George Massey, also of Kew Gardens, who agreed to present her work to the Linnaean Society of London, the premier society for the promotion of natural history, which at the time, and this will shock you, only admitted men to its meetings. The paper on the germination of spores of a Gary Sinier dealt with the wild form of Anokia mushrooms, which nowadays you probably eat in the Japanese restaurants. Beatrix was the first in Britain to cultivate the fungus. In her experiments, she was observing and drawing germinating spores every hour or so. It was kind of like hand-drawn, under-the-microscope, time-lapse photography, which kind of blows my mind. And based on these observations, she was suggesting that these gild fungi may have been able to re reproduce asexually like moulds did. Massey told her that the paper was well received, but it required more work before it could be printed. And to be fair, working out of her parents' kitchen may well have introduced some contaminants. But the fact that the head of Kew Gardens who disapproved of Beatrix presided over the meeting may have tainted things. And in fact, in recent years, the Linnaean Society apologised for this behaviour. Sadly, her paper remains lost. Some say her scientific endeavour ends here. After all, as an amateur and a woman, the deck was seriously stacked against her. However, she produced 70 more microscope drawings over the next two years, suggesting she was trying to resubmit the, resubmit the paper rather than shelving it. When and why she finally stopped her fungal work isn't known. But Beatrix had always wanted to find something useful to do with her talents and to gain a measure of economic and personal independence. Perhaps she just decided that scientific illustration and research, however intriguing, was not helping her reach these goals. That looks like the end of the story, but it isn't. That illustrated letter about the rabbit became a little book, as she called it, and since its first publication in 1902, the tale of Peter Rabbit alone has sold more than 45 million copies and is the 42nd best-selling book of all time. Some 75 years before George Lucas, she made her work a legally protected brand and put Peter and all of her other characters on toys, handkerchiefs, board games and every other kind of merchandising you can imagine. And today, that retail empire is worth $500 million. A recent estimate suggested that somewhere in the world, one of Beatrix's little books is purchased every 15 seconds. You may not see much science in them, but it's in there, in every page of her exacting illustrations. These whimsical little books communicated her love of the natural history of Britain at the very time when Britain was in danger of losing it for good. And it is perhaps not surprising that her work in later life with the National Trust and the donation of her properties bought with the proceeds of her books and merchandising laid the way for the creation of the Lake District National Park, the largest of its kind in the UK. In recent years, her fungal illustrations have been rediscovered, collated, and included in a number of reference books, just as she boldly predicted when writing to a young nephew. I have been drawing funguses very hard, 
I think someday they'll be put in a book, but it will be a very dull one to read. <laughs> dull book or not, her fungal illustrations are painstakingly accurate enough to remain professional scientific reference material over 120 years later. And they are very beautiful.